0: Welcome to DT Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm DT Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Far Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at DTKane.com. Here's the show. Hello friends, welcome back to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is March 26th, 2023 as I record this, which is episode number 31 of season 2 of the podcast, episode number 58 overall, and I am happy to be back with you after a uh, hiatus of a few weeks. If you've been following along in the newsletter, you just know I've had uh, a lot of other things, uh, going on in life here recently between, uh, my dog being sick. He's, he's better now. Thank you for all the well wishes. And then I also had, uh, part five of the Spoken Books Uprising, Into the Dragon's Maw, come out a few weeks ago. Uh, and then I had to do some, uh, traveling to help out some family with a move last week. So it's just all compounded to keeping me away from the, uh, the podcast microphone here for a few weeks. But we are back now and I am, uh, ready to roll along into part four of Declaimer's Discovery with all of you. Uh, just as a quick refresher, we left off uh, Baz and Emma had broken into Duke Farston's study in Liamina Library in Fortune, and Farsten uh, showed up out of nowhere and uh, caught Baz, and it appears Baz is off to the dungeons now, um, and that ended part three of the book, so now we're on to part four. Uh, and we're switching perspectives here for the next few chapters back to Deliritus. We haven't seen Deliritus since, uh, I don't know, 15 or so chapters ago. It's been a while. <clears throat> Remember, he was still en route to Fortune, uh, traveling the uh, the old-fashioned way via horse instead of uh, taking the uh, the express train <laughs> underground that Baz and, uh, Baz and Emma took. So, uh, we are going to start part four of Declaimer's Discovery here now. Part four, chapter 35, seven days later. It's amazing. Dell said. Rox gave a noncommittal grunt. The big man had said little for the past week, ever since they'd lost Bastion. Scribe's truth, Dell had been a bit down about the whole situation himself. Showing up to the Congress with only one speaker to display would have been embarrassing enough. Father would have said that such occasions called for at least three. Now, to show up with Nary a single one? But how could he retain any semblance of depression with the sight that now stood before him? They'd just entered through fortune's main gates, Farsten's presence permitting them to circumvent the long line of common illits and merchants waiting to be admitted into the city. Every inch of fortune shone with undeniable suggestions of wealth— how well off must this city be to adorn the facades of ordinary buildings with precious metals? Everywhere he looked, it was like staring into a mirror, the sun's early morning glare so intense he had to retrieve his solar specks from his pack. The lenses were tinted red and cast his surroundings in a calming carmine hue. He was also astounded at how clean everything was, Even as they progressed deeper into the city and the avenues became more cramped, he never felt that crawling of his skin that came over him on the rare occasions he traversed erstwhile's lower streets. Everything outside the libraries back home was perpetually covered in a film of grime. But here, it seemed as if maids must walk the streets morning, noon, and night, keeping everything polished to a fine sheen. Even the roads were cleaner; nearly all of them paved with level cobbles. Certainly, there were still the occasional beggar and filthy child running underfoot, but they were easily ignored. The farther into the city they went, the closer the towers of fortune's reading district grew, and Rox had to keep pulling Dell out of the way of passers-by, for he had eyes only for the soaring spires. They were oddly shaped, exceedingly narrow until they bulged into spheres toward their peaks, like giant flowers growing over the city streets. He'd lost count of how many of them must be taller than Xavier Tower, and they hadn't even reached the tallest of them yet, a trio that shone in the sun as if they bore within them the whole of Oration's wealth. You are welcome to take up rooms at Liamina Library, of course. Farston said, waving absently at the towers. Dell nearly accepted the offer on reflex. When another duke invited you to his library, it was rude to decline unless there was a very good reason. Why? That would be. Rox emitted an embarrassingly raucous cough, then wiped a hand across the mouth of his harbors mask. Dell grimaced, giving Farston an apologetic shrug. Rox could be the most uncouth of creatures at times. Still, Dell didn't immediately finish what he'd been about to say. There'd been no improvement in his relationship with Duke Farston since the Cityless had attacked them. If anything, Farston had grown colder like a chill winter morning with no sun. The man had spent nearly all of the past week locked in his wagon, doing scribes only knew what. And if Dell had gotten so close as to hear the conveyance's axles turning, Ag would turn eyes, sharp as pikes, at him, promises of murder shining in them. Never mind that Dell was a reader and he a mere harper. The few times Farston had exited from the wagon's confines during the trip, he seemed almost surprised at Dell's presence, as if he was so unimportant that Dell's very existence had slipped Farston's mind. Oh, the Liamina Duke's words were always pleasant enough, but they also floated atop an undercurrent of coercion. Don't forget I own you, was all Dell heard whenever Farston spoke to him. Yet somehow, the tone of Farston's voice made you almost glad he was treating you so, as if merely being addressed by him was a blessing. That is, unless you looked into his eyes, saw the ashen apathy in them. As much as they disturbed Dell, he made a point of always meeting the man eye to eye, lest he otherwise fall under the spell of Farston's seducing tone. Worst of all, though, was that Dell knew Farston was right. He would do anything to keep his secret from the world's ears, even defy his father's wishes. However unlikely it was that Farston would keep the secret of what had truly happened at the Actus trials in perpetuity, Dell would do what he could to appease Duke Liamina. His life would be over otherwise, and he'd have failed both his mother and his father. Even if he wasn't executed, no man could survive such shame and even hope to rise to be the Duke of his library, natural son of the current Duke or no. Still, even if Farston was right about holding a mutable power over him, that didn't mean Dill had to lick his boots from here all the way to the Liamina spires. A most gracious offer, Duke Farsten, Dell said, giving a low bow accompanied by a flourish of his cloak. But if I might be so bold, I expect to see much of your library in the coming days at the Congress, and I'd hoped to explore a bit of fortune in the meantime. So I'd beg your pardon, but I'd prefer to stay elsewhere tonight. Farston regarded Dell with a neutral expression that nonetheless gave Dell the uneasy impression of being dissected like a dead frog in a lifeology classroom, stripped of every last piece of his vitality, one little bit at a time. Very well, Marquis Torchsire. Suit yourself. Just watch where you tread in the city. It shines like a jewel, but has its darker places as well. I would hate for anything to happen to you or your remaining companion. Dell gave Farston an appreciative nod, though his insides twisted with the effort it took not to sneer at the man. He knew Farston had no regard whatsoever for his or Rox's well being. I will see you on the morrow for opening statements, Farston continued. You'll be expected to give one, of course, in your capacity as erstwhile's representative. I am eager to hear it. Farsten left him without further comment, trailed closely by his speaker and brute of a harbor. It took Dell several moments to collect himself and roll up his jaw from where it had dropped onto the cobbles. "'Rocks!' he exclaimed, voice coming out in a decidedly undignified pitch." "'I have to give an opening statement at the Congress?' The harbor gave another noncommittal grunt. "'Absolutely no help at all. "'Give a speech at the Congress? "'Weren't there supposed to be a lot of important people there? "'Important people who judge how small a retinue he had?' Dell stuck a finger beneath his collar, finding he was suddenly sweating. "'Blasted coastal humidity.' Was there any way he could both satisfy his father's command to oppose Farston at every turn, while still staying in line enough with Farston so he didn't disclose Del's secret to the entirety of fortune? And even if he could walk that page's edge, could he really stand before every important person and all of fortune and... and say something positive about the speakers? Scribes, deliver me. Dell said. He pulled a handkerchief from within his jacket, a fine silk dyed deep burgundy, and began dabbing his forehead. He and Rox had continued to walk, and the avenue had opened onto a circular promenade. Dell collapsed onto a nearby bench, head pounding like the heart of an animal headed for slaughter. This was the reading district. Dale had been excited to see it until a few minutes passed, and he tried to take it all in despite the nervous sweat he had to keep wiping from his eyes. Such a curious arrangement, all the libraries in one place. How did they divvy up the illlets to each one? There'd be wars on a weekly basis in erstwhile if a mere two of its libraries took up residence beside one another, much less all of them so close you could turn in a circle and see each one. The libraries themselves were even more jaw-dropping than the rest of the city, each one covered in a different type of precious stone, shining like beacons on a dark night despite the early hour. He hardly noticed all the finery, though. Rather, it was the severed heads adorning the gates of the library encrusted in emeralds that caught Adele's eye. They were in an advanced state of decay, signaling they'd been there for quite some time. Most were without eyes and tongues, the crows having long since made feasts of them. What skin remained drooped like melted wax, giving the eyeless faces an air of great anguish that tugged at heart. Fool, he muttered to himself, feeling pity for speakers who'd committed crimes so wicked their bodies had been treated in such a manner? Maybe his father was right. How could he ever expect to be a duke? Dell leaned his head back until it rested on the rear of the bench, shutting his eyes. What am I going to do, Rox? First, I claim credit for the triumph of another at the trials? Now I'm to either publicly support a cause I detest and face execution, or defy my father and risk losing the dukeship? How can you even stand to be so near me? My life is nothing but one giant lie, bigger than even you. Rox didn't immediately respond, and Dell figured he was just continuing to be fractious over the loss of Bastion. What had the big man expected him to do? Dive into the shallows and give chase? Scribes! If there'd been something he could have done, he'd have done it. He didn't want to be without a speaker for the upcoming Congress. Didn't Rox realize that? The bench shuddered, causing Dell to open his eyes and lift his head. Rox had sat down beside him. Dell struggled to recall when he'd last seen the harbor actually sit. Always the man was standing guard. Say one thing about Rox, say he never loafed in his life. "'It is never too late to speak the truth,' Rox said. Dell looked up to the sky, as if hoping some divine aid would fall from it. When none did, he leaned his head back again, speaking upward without looking at Rox. "'Easy for you to say, Rox. You've never spoken a dishonest word in your life.' It's not so easy to walk back lies once you've permitted them to cross your lips. But then again, maybe you're right. Maybe I ought to just say what I really believe. I'll anger Father. He might even strip me of my marqueeship. But if I oppose Farston, he's sure to reveal what you and Bastion did for me during the trials. I did little, Rox said. Bastion secured victory for you, little Dell. Torn pages! Dell said, looking up sharply. Do not call me that, particularly out in public. Truth be told, it wasn't the stupid nickname that had angered him, but he wasn't about to let the harbor know that. One who speaks lies is never free, Rox said. He is a slave to his own dishonesty. Dell was silent for a time before finally saying, Rox, Much of the time I don't even understand what you're saying, and when I do, rarely do I agree. But that, I must admit, is spot-on, my old protector. I've been a prisoner in shackles of my own making ever since Bastion forced me into keeping his secret. Lies, rumbled Rox. Lies, Dell questioned. Rox's eyes, seeming too small for his massive skull, peered from over his leather face mask. Dell saw much he didn't wish to in the enigma's stare and quickly looked away. Well, perhaps you're right. Bastion isn't solely to blame for my predicament. Why was Farston so interested in him anyway? Surely the man has at his disposal many of the greatest speakers in oration. What would he want with someone like Bastion? That I cannot answer, Rox said, but Duke Farston is not one to honor the truth. I'm sure you're right about that. Gah! It's just all very confusing, Rox. Why is life so hard? Rox rested a hand on Dell's shoulder. It was so massive that it was nearly like having a blanket draped over half his body. A blanket made of heavy stones. Dell sighed and leaned into the reassuring weight. An easy life is not one worth living, little Dell. Dell scoffed. We're back to being on entirely different pages, my oversized gargantuan. But I do appreciate your sentiment, however useless it is to solving my problems. The echoing peal of a large bell made Dell jump. Smudged ink! What is it now? Rox pointed to the structure at the reading district's center. A conservatory, Dell realized nearly identical in architecture to the one in erstwhile, its multi-leveled brick façade covered in doors and windows. One difference, though, was this one had what appeared to be a giant timepiece situated at the peak of its domed roof, a cream face with ebony tick marks and hands like syringes. The clock chimed again and again and again, ten tolls and all, marking the hour. Yet another wonder, Dell said, how convenient it must be to have a device that announced the time of day to the entire city. It would make coordinating meetings so much easier. There was nothing like it back in erstwhile. He'd seen a few pocket chronometers amongst the wealthiest of readers, and Xavier Tower had a standing clock up in its receiving room, but one this size? Dell had never imagined something like it was possible. The inner workings must be monumental. The hairspring alone must have spanned blocks when fully unwound. Shortly after the clock had ceased tolling, the conservatory door closest to roxendell opened, a procession of white-robed men filing out. To the procession's rear were several enforcers, their robes bearing the quill and dagger sigil of the militia. They encircled a young man who was in absolutely deplorable state, his shaved head and brand marking him as a speaker. Dried blood caked beneath his nose, scalp covered in oozing gashes. For a moment, Dell thought it was Bastion and sprang to his feet. But no, this man's skin was far too dark, and despite his emaciated state, his frame was obviously much thicker than Bastion's. Besides, Bastion, if he was still alive at all, was days from here. Dell sat back down, ignoring Rox's curious glance. The speaker was barely able to stand as an enforcer dragged him forward by a chain attached to an iron collar around his neck. Another enforcer at the very rear of the procession... A man nearly as large as rocks rolled a single spoked wheel, taller than he was, out of the conservatory. Its steel-bound rim was stained with rusty discolorations and chimed each time it rolled over a pebble or crevice in the cobbles. Oh, Dell said, rising back to his feet, a breaking. I've heard of these, but never seen one. Let's go have us a look, shall we? Dell took a few steps before realizing Rox was not following. He stopped, turning back to the big man. Rox was eyeing the group of conservators with... What? Apprehension? No, that couldn't be right. Rox didn't get apprehensive. "'I'm not sure this thing will be as worthwhile to witness as you believe,' the large man said in a tone like the buzzing of a whole hive of hornets. "'Come now, Rox!' Dell said, It's just a speaker, after all. They know the consequences if they don't obey. It's simply justice being served. Come along. Rox's expression didn't change, but he did rise and move to hover beside Dell. The conservators had stopped and formed a half circle a few dozen paces outside the conservatory. Several of the enforcers knelt on the cobbles and levered up iron rings that were engineered to fold into the cobbles when not in use. The speaker began to struggle against his bonds, though his efforts were feeble at best, starved as he clearly was. A single enforcer swept the speaker's legs out from under him with a swift kick, forcing the man prone. Several others then bound each of his limbs to the rings with ropes— pulling them taut so he was stretched out to an obviously uncomfortable extent. "'You stand convicted of sedition,' droned one of the conservators, undoubtedly a vicar. The conservatory didn't mark their torturers in any special way, but Deliritus had been around enough of them that he could tell. No one else Deliritus had ever met could speak with such callous indifference. Well, no one other than his father— You are hereby sentenced to be broken by the wheel until dead, the vicar continued. The entrapped speaker let out a low moan, punctuated by a choking sob. By this time, a moderately sized crowd, mostly readers accompanied by harpers of their own, had gathered and many of them jeered at the speaker's cries. Still others watched from atop the walls of the surrounding libraries. Warden! The vicar said to the hulking man with the wheel, his disinterested tone altered by neither the prisoner's cries nor the crowd's derision. You may proceed with the sentence. No, please, cried the speaker. I'll give you whatever you want. Names, dates, anything you the warden rolled the wheel across the speaker's ankles. Dell swallowed. How many times are they going to do that? He murmured to Rox. Many. Rox's arms were folded over his chest, brows drawn low over his eyes. The speaker screamed again, pulling Dell's attention back to him. The wheel had rolled over his lower legs this time, shattering the tibia like glass knocked from a table. Many in the crowd cheered, a few even laughing, though Dell did spy a few whose faces looked as ill as he felt. Those latter all appeared to be illits, though. There really was something wrong with him. Why couldn't he ever just act like a normal reader? He envied those able to take joy in this display of justice. The warden hoisted the wheel off the ground, With a grunt of exertion, the massive man moved into position over one of the speaker's upper legs, lifted it high, then let it drop. Dell turned away as the speaker wailed. He was about to tell Rox he'd seen enough, but had to take several moments to ensure words were the only things that came out of his mouth when he opened it. As he collected himself, his eyes fell on a finely dressed man toward the rear of the crowd. He caught Dell's eye because he wore the most colorful garment Dell had ever seen a patchwork of reds, blues, greens, and white, all hemmed in black. It ought to have looked completely ridiculous, yet somehow it all blended together. The man's tailor must have been a true master. He was seemingly middle aged, with mahogany hair down to his shoulders, shining in the morning sunlight, uncovered by a hat. His arms were folded, and the expression he bore was similar to Rox's, though his eyes were nonetheless locked on the gruesome scene from which Dell had turned away. As Dell looked at him, though, his gaze shifted and locked with Dell's own. There was nothing for it but to at least acknowledge him, so Dell nodded. The man returned the gesture, then began walking toward him. Great! Just what he wanted conversation with a stranger while he was focused on his roiling stomach. A thud, followed by another agonized cry from the speaker, sounded from behind Adele. right as the robed man reached him, though the robed man flinched not at all. He raised a hand in greeting, displaying an odd assortment of finery. Each of his fingers bore a golden ring that was linked to its neighbor by a fine chain causing his hand to chime like a bell when he raised it. All right, hello there, DT crew. Uh, Again, welcome back to the podcast here on the other side of this week's reading. Uh, Again, just uh, to reiterate my apologies for being away for a few weeks here but uh it's been unavoidable and life does happen uh, especially for the uh <laughs> the self-published author who has a day job so uh hopefully i'll be getting back into a regular podcast groove here in the coming weeks um just for uh those of you who don't follow along in the newsletter give you a quick uh rundown here of what's been going on of course into the dragon's maw came out a couple of weeks ago that's part 5 of the spoken books Uprising release was successful and in fact I uh was running some promos on the Actus Trials which of course is book 1 in the series to kind of uh stir up interest since the latest volume was out and uh those promos actually helped me hit uh number 1 in a category on Amazon so now we can uh, all call me uh D. D. Kane number 1 best so that was uh that was exciting um and thanks for everyone who sent me congratulations about that. Um, other than that, I am uh, hard at work on part six of the Spoken Books Uprising, which uh, I am going to be calling Fire and Ink. Uh, I'm kind of in the the murky middle there now, which is always when the self-doubt kind of sets in, and I wonder if... Uh, No, I know actually know anything about writing, (laughs) but uh, that's okay. That usually happens in the middle of drafts, uh, and I will get myself back on on track here. I think this one's going to be good once I work some things out. Usually what happens is by the middle of a first draft, I realize uh, I've discovered a bunch of things that are going to make the story better, but then I have to go back and kind of set all of them up so they make sense, and I'm kind of uh, stuck in a no-man's land of do I push on and just pretend I've written that and then write it later, or do I just go back now and rewrite some things and then go on? So, I think I've finally settled on, usually I'll just plow through and finish the draft, and then leave myself comments to address later, but uh, uh, I've discovered enough things where I think it's going to be more useful to actually go back and edit the first part of the draft here before I can continue on, so I've, I've finally come to that realization, so... I'm probably going to be spending the next couple of weeks doing that before I plow on. So, um, probably around July, I would guess is when that's going to come out, um, barring any major setbacks, but I'll of course be keeping you updated on the progress, uh, for that. Um, then the only other thing is, I don't know <laughs> some of you probably know as well, my, my dog was uh, was sick, and that was taking up a lot of my time in the month of February. Uh, he is better now. Uh, we thought nah, you know, he wasn't eating or walking, so that's not good, especially for a for a senior dog like he is. He's going to be twelve in a couple months, but uh, it turns out he uh, has vestibular disease, which is uh, uh, you yeah, know basically. His inner ears were not working properly, so he was uh, dizzy and nauseous. That's why he wasn't eating or walking. So uh, he got some medicine for that and is, you know pretty much back to his normal self, except he uh, developed pressure sores on both of his elbows because he was bedridden for so long. So uh, my wife and I are dealing <laughs> with that now. One of them is pretty much fully healed, but the other one on his right arm is still pretty deep. So uh, we had to keep uh, rebandaging him every day. Um, and I don't know, he may need, uh, some minor surgery to actually get, get it fully healed, but we'll see, but he's doing well. Um, and, uh, he is just another reason for you to sign up to my newsletter because you get lots of cute photos of, uh, of my dog. If you, if you subscribe to, uh, the newsletter, so, uh, uh slash email dash sign up if you are interested uh, in that, I also recently changed email providers. I am now using Mailer Lite. So, if you noticed the uh, the change in format of the newsletter, that's why. Um, would love to hear uh, everyone's thoughts and how on how that looks. I've been trying to streamline it a little, um, include a little less detail in it. But uh, but there you go. So those are the personal updates uh just one more reminder to grab your copy of into the dragon's maw if uh if you have not already uh bookstoread.com slash into the dragon's maw uh, maw m-a-w um and you can find a link to your preferred retailer there and also just another uh uh quick reminder to leave uh, ratings and reviews of each of the books in the series if you've Enjoyed them. Uh, yeah, the reviews really do help me out. Give me more visibility with the retailers. You know, like it or not, uh, the retailers base a lot of their decisions off of how many uh, reviews a book has. So, so consider uh, leaving a review on Amazon or wherever else you read and purchase your books from. <clears throat> um, okay, so that's really it. Though I am going to leave you um, with. Uh, the now complete short story of Purebred Langdog. I've read the first two parts on the uh, previous two episodes of the podcast, and I am going to append those two parts to the end of this episode and then also read the final part now so you guys can have the complete short story. Um, And I may revisit these characters and write some more stories with them in the future. So... Here is the uh, complete purebred Langdog short story. Um, And I will leave you with that. So uh, until next week, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Purebred Langdog. All right. (laughs) Bud lay in a corner of the piano bar, scratching at his ear and watching his owner make a fool of himself again. Awkward as ever, he twirled the umbrella-topped stir of his appletini, the drink illuminated green by glowing plastic cubes at the glass's bottom. The woman beside Bud's owner was drinking a beer, and he was trying to explain to her why beer tasted so much better here on Mars. Oxidation! he exclaimed. Bud whined and rolled onto his side, covering his face with a paw. Less oxygen in the air here, so yeast doesn't go bad as quickly. Very interesting, the woman said without enthusiasm. Bud wondered how long it'd be until his owner realized the chair to the girl's left had a sports coat draped over it. Probably not soon enough to avoid a controversy. That was hardly something Bud had the patience for. Not that it wasn't entertaining to watch his owner fight, but last week he'd sprained his wrist punching a gray-skinned Martian and he hadn't stopped complaining since. So Bud rose and shook, jangling his collar tags and loped over to the bar. Let's go, Lazarus, Bud said. The light on his collar went from green to yellow as the Lang processor translated his growls to Earth Standard and into Laz's earpiece. Bud's owner frowned a moment later, waving a dismissive hand. Not now, Bud, he muttered. I think she's starting to. Who's this? The voice had a quality to it, like a... The voice had a quality to it like that of a cracked biodome, a sense of impending dread lying beneath its flat tone. Bud looked up into the man's face. Juvenile, actually. Surprising. Bud wouldn't have expected a kid hardly old enough for the academy to speak with such a dour tone. The youth's expression was a mask impenetrable as an event horizon. No one, trip, the woman said. Despite being at least ten years older, the lady showed surprising submissiveness toward the young man. Just a local drunk. Let's go. We'll be late for the carnival. I'm not a... (laughs) Uh, Let's try that again. No one trip, the woman said. Despite being at least ten years older, the lady showed surprising submissiveness toward the young man. Just a local drunk. Let's go. We'll be late to the carnival. I'm not from around here, Laz said, pointing the drinkster at the woman, and this is only my fourth martini. Appletini, Bud said. Laz ignored him. He doesn't look drunk to me, Tripp said, voice still edged with foreboding. Why don't we bring him to the carnival with us? Bring him with us? The woman asked as if he'd suddenly spoken in Martian rather than Earth Standard. Of course, Tripp said. Feel free to bring your Langmut as well. "'I'm no mutt!' Bud snapped. Of course, to Trip's ears, it was just a bark, and, as he so often did, Laz ignored him once more. "'The carnival of the dancing robots?' Laz asked. He raised his glass by the stem and tore Trip, then downed the contents in a single swig. "'Why not? Been a few decades since I saw the androids' waltz. "'Oh, and by the way, have you tried sassafras for that rash?' He motioned at a red irritation on Tripp's neck. Old earth remedy. Any greenhouse in the dome ought to be able to replicate you some. Tripp's smile matched his tone. Let's be going. Lazarus had once been a microbiologist. Well, he'd been a lot of things, but biology had always been a favorite of his. That's why it never ceased to amaze Bud when Lazarus said something completely preposterous. Did you know that parakeets were the first domesticated species on Mars? Lazarus asked. That's not true, Bud growled. Lazarus didn't even glance his way as he continued to inspect the enclosure that held a flock of long-tailed green birds. The robots were the carnival's main attraction, but it featured all sorts of oddities. Bud considered leaping the barrier for a snack. There'd be a fine, but he could afford that. The paperwork, though. Thought of that stopped him. Holding a pen was such a pain. I always thought it was cats, Trip's date said. Bud growled again. This time, there was nothing to translate. I'm pretty sure it was parakeets, Lazarus said. Irrelevant, Tripp said. The cathedral is this way. The oh, Let's try that again. <clears throat> Irrelevant, Trip said. The cathedral is this way. The young man strode through the crowd as if he expected them to follow. Lazarus offered his arm to the woman. She turned up her nose at him and strode off after Tripp. Smooth, Bud said. I think she's coming around, Lazarus "'Lazarus replied. "'She's coming around to asking her boyfriend to slug you.' "'Lazarus was already following after the woman. "'Bud wished he could stay behind, just to make a point, "'but no Langdog could do that. "'As Bud padded after Lazarus, "'he had to turn down his olfactory receptors. "'Martians loved fried food, and the scent of it was overwhelming.' The geneticists had phased most of the animal urges from lang-dog genes, but he still had a hard time resisting Olympus Mons frites, the twice-fried potatoes first made famous at the high-altitude pubs on Olympus Mons. Lazarus often lamented to Bud about how difficult it must be being a dog. Bud had similar thoughts about humans— Take walking, for example. As a man, you had to walk about at eye level with all the other men, greatly increasing the chances that someone would speak to you. That alone was enough to make Bud grateful to be a dog. Talking to Lazarus was bad enough. Bud adjusted his receptors again to ensure he didn't lose Lazarus's scent. He dodged around heels and boots and bare Martian feet, the gray monstrosities twice as large as a human's. Lazarus's odor was slightly sweet from the apple vodka. Apparently, there were few apple enthusiasts at the carnival as Lazarus stood out just like he had a neon sign over his head. Even that smell, though, was overcome by a new one as they approached the cathedral, android serum. There was nothing religious about the cathedral. Most worship had gone the way of old earth, consumed by a black hole. But a couple of centuries past, Gothic architecture had celebrated a brief revival, and the cathedral was the crowning achievement of that era. Gray stone, veined in red, mined from Valles Marineris, cut into great blocks. There were arches everywhere one could be accommodated, crenellations lining the roofline, and lots of angles. Gargoyles with wings spread wide cast shadows over the carnival-goers. Trip took the cathedral steps two at a time and entered through double doors made of wood, a real luxury on a planet where the only wood was synthesized in the bio-labs of Hellas Planetitia. An eruption of sound leaked from the doors, and Bud laid his ears flat as he followed after Lazarus. A little girl made to reach into his back pocket seconds after they entered, but Bud snapped at her and she ran off into the crowd. Behave, Lazarus said. Eyes still focused on Tripp's date. Bud considered nipping at his heels. Oh, look! the woman exclaimed. They're doing the moonwalk! My favorite! Bud realized the cacophony coming from within the cathedral was what humans called music when the woman began dancing in place. She was standing beside Tripp at the base of a circular stage surrounded by people. The room was vast, vendors packed side by side, selling more fried foods in the latest Martian fashions in yellow and pink silks. The stage was beneath a multi-story ceiling, spectators hanging from the balconies. Lights had been positioned behind the stained glass set into the roof, casting a kaleidoscope of colors onto the performers below. Here was the main attraction, the carnival's namesake, Robots were outlawed for the most part, but were permitted in small, tightly regulated numbers in a few provinces. Provinces. They all looked the same humanoid in shape, smooth bronze plating on the limbs and faces, silver torsos. Their eyes were multifaceted sensors, sparkling as they reflected the light from the stained glass. They were all unclothed, as garments were illegal for any robot. Bud rose up on his hind legs, paws on Lazarus's shoulders to get a better view. The robots moved at once like men and nothing like them, like someone's dream of how a perfect man might move, lithe, impossibly graceful. They were gliding backwards across the stage in unison, their not-eyes straight ahead metal faces incapable of expression. Down, Lazarus said, shrugging his shoulders. Ordinarily, Bud would have been annoyed, but he heard the sudden strain in his owner's voice and so instead obeyed, then gave a comforting nudge against his leg. Lazarus rubbed behind Bud's ears in reply. Around that time was when Trip jumped onto the stage, a knife in each hand. The music kept on playing. A few in the crowd gasped at the strange display, young man with acne marching across the stage with blades drawn. Many more, though, hooted, thinking it was all part of the evening's entertainment. Lazarus twitched as if to follow Trip. Bud grabbed the hem of his shirt between his teeth, growling as he did so. His collar translated without issue, It was dependent on Bud's thoughts, not actual sounds. Don't, Laz! This must be why he invited you! I should have realized before! Lazarus stopped struggling and Bud released his shirt. He had to peer up through legs and around still-dancing bodies to see what Trip was doing. He was up in the face of one of the robots, making lewd gestures. The android continued its fluid movements as if it didn't see him, even though Bud knew it must robots had plenty of reasons to ignore humans. Tripp held his knife before the robot's optical sensors, following the movements of the dance, so the weapon stayed in its field of view. With a malevolent grin, he sliced a narrow incision across the dancing android's chest. It gave no indication of having felt the blade, but a few drops of amber fluid dripped from one of its sensors. Many in the crowd roared with drunken laughter. Tripp's date tittered along with them. I'd always heard they couldn't feel. Now I see it's true. Mindless hunks of metal, just like the FOG says. A loud smack pulled Bud's attention from Trip. A loud smack pulled Bud's attention away from Trip. His date stood staring at Lazarus in shock, a red welt already rising on her cheek. "'Don't be simple, woman!' Lazarus shouted. "'Just because they're different doesn't mean they deserve your scorn!' It took several moments for Tripp's date to revive from her shock. When she did, she reached into her pocketbook, coming out with a personal defense article, a sleek bit of metal that looked something like a cross between a comb and an old earth pistol. Touch me again and you'll regret it. I don't doubt it, Lazarus said, turning back to the stage as if pretty women pulled weapons on him regularly, which, come to think of it, had occurred four or five times in the past month. They hadn't all been Lazarus's fault, but still... While the lady's PDA might not have troubled his owner, Bud kept an eye on it. Lazarus had a steel-bound constitution, but a stunner could still harm him. Ironically, it was Bud's protectiveness that caused him to miss what happened next on stage, and more importantly, Lazarus's reaction. You bastard! Bud spun, front paws set low, ready for trouble. He'd seen Lazarus do plenty of stupid things, but even he was surprised to see his owner sprinting across the stage. The robots had finally stopped dancing, one of their number convulsing in mechanical jerks on the stage floor. More of the carmine fluid was leaking from a much larger gash across its abdomen. Trip stood above it, knives green in the glow of stained glass, face cast in a mixture of shadows and scarlet luminance. He seemed ready to die. He seemed ready to drive another blow into the writhing android when Lazarus reached him, throwing his body between the evil young man and the fallen robot. More of the audience seemed to be realizing this wasn't part of the show, but a good many continued their raucous jeers. Whether they continued to believe this was all for their entertainment or simply didn't care an android was being abused, Bud couldn't say. Stop this, Lazarus cried as he shielded the fallen robot with his body. Why? Tripp's voice lacked even an echo of compassion. Bots were created to serve us and then spurned mankind like the thankless scrap they are. They deserve no greater benevolence than a washing machine. Do you regularly attack your washing machine like a maniac? Lazarus asked. Tripp laughed, but Bud saw the look in his eye, saw just where this was going. Bud made to leap onto the stage. Before he could, though, pain exploded in his hind legs, and he stumbled over with a whimper. Tripp raised one of his knives. When an appliance breaks, I dispose of it. His blade dropped, and Lazarus did what Bud knew he would— showed the one trait he possessed that made bud proud to call him owner compassion lazarus deflected the blow with a forearm red fluid splattered across the stage despite the pain in his legs bud growled in dismay at the wires and circuitry that showed through the gash in his owner's arm lazarus barely flinched glancing down just long enough to survey the damage Lazarus's serum was distinctly more scarlet than a robot's, owing to the real human blood mixed with it. "'Cyborg!' Tripp exclaimed. That word would have horrified most people. Indeed, many in the crowd shared nervous glances, others departing the cathedral entirely. But Tripp's face showed only excitement. "'I knew it! That dog of yours! The coloring is clever!' black with imperfect patches of white on the paws and snout. But its movements were far too arrogant for a mutt. No, that's a purebred lang dog, a cyborg's companion. They train us at the academy to ID them. Do they? Lazarus said. Well, A-plus then. But tell me, do they also teach you how to handle their masters once you've made a successful identification?" For the first time, Tripp's smug expression left him, replaced by surprised pain as Lazarus punched him in the gut. Bud could hear multiple ribs snap from across the stage. Tripp staggered back, gasping, then turned and limped toward an exit at the stage's rear. Lazarus pursued, but pulled up with a sudden. St- Lazarus pursued, but pulled up with a sudden start after only a few steps. When Tripp realized he wasn't being followed, he stopped and turned back. His eyes fell to Bud, then he smiled darkly. A cyborg can't leave his lang dog. Not since we took the net down. Lazarus looked back to Bud. Initially there was anger in them, but when he saw Bud on the ground unmoving, real fear was in his eyes. He rushed back across the stage and was kneeling beside Bud faster than any human could have moved. "'It's okay, Laz,' Bud said with another whimper. "'Just a stunner. My legs will work again in a few minutes.' Lazarus exhaled through his nose, then turned angry eyes at Tripp's date, who still stood nearby with PDA ready. "'I thought robots were smart,' she said. "'We are,' Lazarus replied.' Now, when it comes to women, apparently. You never even asked my name. Lazarus was silent a moment, then said, What is it? Go, screw! The woman turned and disappeared into the crowd. Lazarus watched her go. I never can pick a good one. Alas, Bud said, Ordinarily I would love to have a good laugh over your relationship woes, but we need to go. The cathedral was emptying quickly, and those who remained were staring at them in fear. A few held hands to ears, obviously making calls on cell chips. Lazarus looked back to the stage, and Bud followed his eyes. Trip was gone. The robot he'd murdered lay still, its comrades standing motionless over it. Serum fell from all their optical sensors now. Come on, Bud said. There's nothing we can do for them. Lazarus looked a moment longer, then nodded. Some day soon, there will be. But for now, you're right. Come on, let's get gone. Squatting, Lazarus scooped Bud off the ground and held him close. Bud wasn't a small dog, but Lazarus carried him as if he weighed no more than a feather. He wasn't one for coddling, but Bud's rear legs were still numb, so the purebred Langdog nestled into his owner's protective embrace and permitted himself to be carried to safety. No one tried to get in their way. Of course, moments later, sirens began to blare. And that ends uh, the short story, A Purebred Langdog by yours truly, D.T. Kane. Uh if you'd be interested in a uh electronic copy of Purebred Langdog, you can uh get one by signing up for my newsletter, dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. Um you'll get a copy of that along with two other uh short stories, um one of which is actually a bonus epilogue to the actus trials. The only way to get it is to head over to that URL I just said, dtkane.com slash email dash sign up and you can uh, get your hands on those like I said you do have to sign up for my email list to do that but frankly you can just unsubscribe once you get the free download but uh I do try to include useful stuff in the newsletter each week it's not just a a big advertisement I uh I share essays and and short stories and and news or deals on books so of course I do occasionally try to sell you my own books as well but that's not the only thing I do in it so Uh, consider signing up but uh regardless i hope you enjoyed that story and uh that's the end of this week's episode so until next time this has been dt kane's epic fantasy book club thanks for listening to dt kane's epic fantasy book club if you liked today's episode please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts if you're watching on youtube Give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com podcast podcast. Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers, or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D. T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com/email-signup. If you'd like to connect, you can find D. T. Kane on Facebook at dtkaneauthor or Twitter at dtkaneauthor, or send D. T. Kane an email at dtkane at dtkane.com. See you next week.